0: Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Westwood. Happy Easter. It is so, so good to be with you this morning. We have something to celebrate, and it is a crucified, risen, and reigning Savior. Praise God. Yes. I am so thankful for opportunities in which we get to gather as the church, as the bride of Christ, to lift high the name that is above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever believed something that was absolutely ridiculous? Okay, so when I was a kid, I used to believe that teachers lived at school, okay? Because where else would teachers live, right? I also, at that same time, I had someone tell me that if you eat a watermelon seed, it will grow a watermelon in your belly, Y'all, you have never seen a five-year-old eat watermelon with precision like I did, okay? I also, someone told me that if you untied your belly button, your body falls apart, okay? (laughs) And it turns out it's not true, okay? Thanks, Dad. I appreciate that. But then there's, this is the kingpin for me. Like the one thing I believe that is not true but was so like true in my heart at the time is that the the toilet in most restaurants is so violent. I was concerned that when I flushed, I was going to go down with it. And so you've never seen it. It was crazy. I would flush and run out the door in fear that I was going to be going down the pipes. It's funny how we have these things that we believe that sometimes are totally ridiculous. Well, when it comes to the cross of Jesus Christ, there are many who view the cross as foolishness. They see it as absolutely ridiculous. But then you have others who see the cross. They see what God has done for them in the gospel. They see a crucified savior and they believe and their lives are changed forever. That is the Apostle Paul's point in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter one. If you don't have your Bible with you, it's all good. You can pull up the Westwood app, and under the Resources tab, there is a Bible that you can download onto your phone be so it'll follow along with us here in the text. Now, Paul planted this church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. It's a very pivotal location as it's a seaport on the Mediterranean Sea. It was strategically located for the sake of great gospel influence as people were traveling in and through this port day after day after day. But unfortunately, the city had this reputation kind of like our modern-day Vegas, okay? Now, there's not confirmation of this, but from my perspective, I think they had a slogan at the front of their city that said, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, okay? That was the culture there. Corinth was a, a place that they lived for sin and for self. In fact, unfortunately, what we see happening in the church is that the church looked more like the culture rather than like Christ, And even though this church was beautiful because they had Christ, it was an absolute mess. And so Paul writes them this letter. He is disciplining them. He is correcting them for the way that they're they're behaving. So throughout this letter, Paul's addressing all kinds of issues. Like what we see is that they're they're believing the, the things of the world rather than the things of God. You have a man in the church who's boasting about an inappropriate relationship he's having with his stepmother. You see the church taking one another to court. They're suing each other. There are some who are getting drunk on the Lord's Supper. You have unhealthy marriages. You even have some who are unsure about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter not only to correct their theology, but to lead them in godly living and say, this is what the gospel looks like. We are to go this way. But the tone of this letter is is like a strong word of discipline. Parents, I'm not sure if you're ever like me with my five kids, but you're just there. There's times they start stepping out of bounds, they make foolish choices, and you give them that chin to left shoulder. That, and then like there's this moment where it's like, okay, it's time to correct this foolishness right now, okay? And then you those, those, that noise that most kids fear the, the sound of a belt coming out of the pants, like, uh oh, I'm about to get it, right? Well, that's what this letter is. This is Paul not just giving a a chin to left shoulder, he is disciplining them like a loving father disciplining his wayward child. In his letter, he is directing their attention back towards the gospel. Well, in chapter 1, we see little clicks breaking out inside the church. There are some who are like, hey, I follow Paul. And others are like, well, I follow Apollos. And then others are like, well, I follow Cephas. And then you got the really spiritual crowd, and they're like, well, I follow Christ. And so Paul is trying to say, no, 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 no. Let's remember what unites us. Let's remember what brings us together, and it is the gospel. The gospel is what brings us together. It's not about who baptized you. Because for Christ, verse 17 did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will be emptied of its effect. But then Paul draws a line at the cross. There are those who will reject it and those who will receive it. Those who view it as ridiculous and those who view it as salvation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Notice in the text the two responses that people have when it comes to the cross of Christ. The first response is that the cross is foolishness to the perishing. Verse 18, Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul here is, he's categorizing unbelievers who reject Christ, who reject the gospel as those who view the cross as absolute foolishness. That word for foolishness, verse 18, it means absurd, it means ridiculous. So what is it about the cross that elicits this kind of response well, let's cut to the chase. The cross was an instrument of torture and execution. I was in the shopping mall one time, and I saw a bunch of teenage boys who looked like they were up to no good. So I thought, man, this is a great gospel opportunity. So I walked up to this big group of boys hanging out, and one of them had a chain around his neck that was gold, and he had a gold cross with diamonds inside of it. And so I said, hey, I like that cross. Why, 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 why are you wearing it? And he says, well, I just think it looks good. I said, okay. I said, did you know that, that was a, that's a symbol of an actual device, an instrument back in the first century of torture and execution? His eyes got really big like, what are you talking about? And I used that cross around his neck to point him to the gospel. You see, the cross is an instrument of torture and execution. It is a gruesome, terrible way to die, and here, Paul is pointing to the cross as the means of celebration for those who belong to Jesus. In fact, in Galatians 6:14, he says, "May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ." Well see, that's absolute foolishness in the first century. It'd be kind of like us. We're celebrating lynching. We're celebrating the electric chair. We're celebrating the gas chamber. That's exactly what the cross is it's an instrument of torture and execution you see the cross is more than a symbol it's a mark of humiliating death the Assyrians invented it but the Romans perfected it murderers thieves traitors all of them would be crucified by Roman soldiers Often the roads that were headed into downtown Rome were lined on both sides with people hanging on crosses. And it was Rome's warning to all who were visiting this is what happens to those who break the law. You see, criminals would be stripped naked, they would have nails driven through their hands, and they would hang on this cross and a nail through their legs. And they would be hanging, but they were unable to breathe. The weight of their body brought them so low. So they would push up with their legs to catch a breath. But then they would be brought back down. First century Roman politician Cicero, he says, there is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. The cross was an excruciatingly painful execution. It was a terrible way to die. But for the Greeks, the, those who were prideful, those who boast in their knowledge and in their wisdom, for the Greeks where wisdom and philosophy was everything, they were boasting of being more refined, the cross was repulsive. It was absurd. So when Paul comes in Acts 18 into Corinth and he's preaching the death of Jesus on the cross, for 18 months he's staying in the city and he's preaching the cross, lifting high the cross because there would be some who would scoff in hubris over such a thought. There would be others who would shrug their shoulders in apathy over what in the world the deal about the cross was. There are even some who actually believed this message They put their faith in Jesus. They they trusted in the cross, and it led to some of them being beaten. But from the perspective of unbelievers, the cross was ridiculous. But Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, the cross of Christ does not make sense to the wisdom of this age in which we live. God taking on human flesh, being humbled to die on a cross. In the eyes of the world, that's weak, that's humiliating. That's absurd. And yet for those who view the cross as foolishness, it points to their own destruction. Look at verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The word perishing, verse 18, it means permanent and absolute destruction. The word perish, it doesn't mean annihilation. It doesn't mean that you cease to exist. It means that there is an eternal death that awaits those who reject the cross and God's love in Christ Jesus. So number one, the cross is foolishness to the perishing. But number two, watch this. The cross is the power of God to the rescued. Verse 18, Paul says, but it's the power of God to us who are being saved. That word for power, it's where we get our word for dynamites. It means might, strength, power. Well, where, Kenneth, is God's power on display? Verse 18, it's in the cross. The cross is where the power of God is on display. But who is it for? Verse 18, us who are being saved. That word saved, it means to be rescued. You see, through the cross, you have been brought to divine safety. In the cross, God has made a means of saving you, of rescuing you from eternal destruction that's coming. But this has always been God's plan from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, God made a promise. He said, through the offspring of the woman, through the seed of the woman, he's going to bruise your heel, but he's going to crush your head. Satan, you are going to go down and he's going to stomp on your head and that is ultimately fulfilled in the cross. In Psalm 22, King David said the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Y'all, that's 800 years before crucifixion was ever invented. Isaiah 53. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about the coming Messiah that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. But then you get to the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. We see where Simon Peter stands up and he preaches at Pentecost and he speaks of the cross and says, Jesus was delivered up according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You see, the cross was always God's plan A and there was no plan B. That is exactly why Jesus came. His primary purpose for coming to earth was a cross, was to go and die for the sins of the world. In Matthew 16, Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and as they're hanging out, he tells his disciples, I'm going to head to Jerusalem in which I'm going to be turned in, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And Simon Peter steps up and says, God forbid, don't do that. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus would not even allow his own disciple, Simon Peter, block him or prevent him from fulfilling the mission of why he came. And that is to go to the cross. Jesus had laser-like focus on getting to the cross to fulfill the reason why he came and in luke chapter 9 verse 51 it says when the days drew near for jesus to be taken up he set his face to go to jerusalem there was a laser like focus in which he is focused on the cross he will accomplish what god has in store for him well why in the world is jesus so focused on the cross it's because Through his death, the wrath of God would be satisfied towards sin. He would, through his death, be able to reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3. It's through his death on the cross that he would atone for your sin and my sin. It's through his death on the cross that you and I could be forgiven. We can be redeemed. We can be adopted into God's family. God loves you so much that he sends his son to do one thing, and that's to die on the cross. And Jesus gave his life for you. The full wrath of God towards your sin was placed upon Jesus so that you could be set free. He was focused on the cross because of what it would accomplish, the salvation of many. But you see, the cross was reserved for lawbreakers, murderers, thieves, sinners. Jesus was none of those. So why is he the one who's taking the wrath? that we, That's us. Why is he there doing it? Because it's through his death he steps in and takes our place. Instead of being you on that cross, receiving full punishment for your sin, Instead of receiving eternal wrath in hell, Jesus steps in and takes your hell for you. He gladly drinks the cup of God's wrath dry so that you could be eternally satisfied in him. What's amazing is that the lawgiver came, he kept the law, and then he died for the lawbreakers. The sinless savior died for sinners like us. The king gladly gave his life for his people. That's what we see in the cross is the power of God on display that Jesus died your death so that you don't have to. He took your judgment so that you could go free. He took your hell at the cross so that you can go home. He took your condemnation so that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what he came to do, to die on the cross for the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul goes on to say, God made him who knew no sin become sin, watch this, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is this sinless savior. God made him who knew no sin. He didn't know it. He was totally sin free. But at the cross, made him, God made him become sin. He represents you and me at the cross. So that those who believe in him, we receive his righteousness. Last night, Brother Rick talked about, about this, this great exchange. Jesus took our sin, so we get his righteousness. He took God's wrath so we could be full of joy and set free. It's the work of the cross. This is what God came to do for us in Jesus. But here's the deal, grab hold of this. Before you can fully grasp what Jesus has done for you, you must first understand that it was done by you. You see, it was you and it was me who nailed Jesus to the cross. We are the ones with the hammer in our hands. Because of our sin, we have blood on our hands. We are the guilty ones. We are the ones who put Jesus upon the cross. All of us are guilty. And yet, Jesus was not passive in his death. He wasn't just a victim who couldn't control it. He didn't run away from the cross in fear. He embraced the cross in obedience to his Father. He embraced the cross as the means of bringing many, many children into the kingdom. See, it's in the cross. We see God in Christ volunteering to take our place. He volunteered to take your suffering. He volunteered to take your shame. He volunteered to take all of your sin upon himself. And at the cross, Jesus was in physical agony under God's condemnation. Wrath for sin was placed upon him, mocked by the ones he came to save. And yet Hebrews 12.2 says that he did it all for joy. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, how in the world can the cross be joy? It's because of what it accomplished for us. If you've been rescued by Jesus, if you look by faith to the cross of Christ, you see the power of God on display. You see the work of God's redemptive plan of saving us from sin and death. But you know the best news of all? He's not dead. He is risen! And he is risen indeed! The power of the gospel is that he did not stay dead. On that third day, he got up out that grave. There is an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. You can look, but you won't find him there. Jesus is alive. And because he defeated death, so too will all who put their faith and trust in Him. That we gather and we celebrate, we lift up and praise Jesus and look like Easter eggs right now. Because Jesus is alive. We celebrate what Christ has done for us. He is not dead on a cross. He is risen, ruling, and reigning in heaven. Sovereign over all things. Smiling at the days to come. Afraid of nothing. So those who look to him by faith. Those who trust in him will be saved forever. You see, Easter is God's reminder that death does not have the final word. You don't have to fear death anymore, by the way. One of the things that Jesus accomplished at the cross was to free you from the fear of death. Hebrews two, you're set free. This is what Christ came to do. You don't have to be afraid of death. You don't have to be afraid of hell. You don't have to be afraid of God's judgment and wrath because that's what God took care of for you at the cross. And through his resurrection, it vindicated him, showed him he truly is the Son of God. And those who trust in him will be set free, not just for a few years, not just for a few days, but you are set free for all of eternity. 200 million years from now, you will be alive and well if you are in Christ. That's what Resurrection Sunday is about. That's why we gather and can celebrate. It's because Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, so too are those who trust in him. You see, the gospel, y'all, is so simple. It's powerful. It's so simple that a young child can understand it. And yet God in his infinite wisdom sees fit to take this simple gospel and make it so complex that a college professor can't get their head around it. Because God loves to shame the wise and to show the power of weakness through the death of Jesus for us. The cross is simple and powerful. But here's the question, do you believe? See, everything I just shared with you is just mere information, and it will remain so unless you respond. You must do something in response. Well, Kenneth, what do I got to do? Get baptized? No. Start making better choices? No. Start being a good person? No. The answer is belief. Trust. Bank your life upon Jesus and what he has done for you behold look to Jesus put the full weight of your salvation the full weight of your soul upon the work of Jesus you don't work for it Jesus did the work for you so you bank everything upon Christ and what he has done for you so that when you believe it is then that you are saved it is then that you are rescued And it is then that you see the cross, not as just this religious symbol, you see it as the very power of God for all who believe. So the question is, is the cross ridiculous and foolish to you, or is it your very rescue plan? Is it your salvation? This morning, behold Jesus look to Jesus, be saved by Jesus, by in your heart crying out to him, say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you rescue me, would you save me? And he will answer your prayer, yes I will. I have made a way through my son, believe, trust. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you then start a journey. And it is then that Luke 9:23 will begin to make sense when Jesus says, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. That's what you and I get to do. For the rest of our lives, until Jesus calls us home, we get to follow Jesus. All because of the great, wonderful cross. It's simple and it's powerful. For all who believe, trust in Jesus.